Saturday Coffee Clutch. And it is the Saturday Coffee Clutch with Heather Lofthouse and yours truly, Robert Reich. And we have a guest today. I'm not going to reveal that right away, uh, but uh, just to get into the first topic, Heather, uh, we had a New Hampshire primary this week. And a lot of people say that uh, Donald Trump won, but why do they say Donald Trump won when he only won by 11 and a half points? Uh, I mean, he is the, you know, in, in terms of in terms of a figure, he was he was president. He was president. And he's, he's right. kind of an effective incumbent president. That seems to me very poor showing, doesn't it? Well, and you said in your substack, which we have to reference, that you, independents, I mean, independents were up for Haley more than we thought, rather than Trump. That was an interesting loss. Um, and also Biden, 70 plus thousand, 9,000, 6,000 write-ins. I mean, love to see that as well. Well, I think, I think the, the, the reality is that the independents who make up half of the voters in America uh, really uh, don't like, you know, they don't like this man, this crazy man named Donald Trump. I mean, they don't know how, how completely nuts he is. And this is actually a good point to bring in our guest. Uh, and our guest, our surprise guest today is one of one of the best Congress people we have. He is uh, he's a progressive, uh, a co-director and co-head of the Progressive Caucus. He was the co-chair of Bernie Sanders' campaign. Uh, he's an author. He wrote uh, a lot of books. I mean, uh, you know, the most recent book that I read was uh, The Digital Age, uh, kind of uh, dignity, dignity in a digital age. Well, his name is Ro Khanna. Roth, welcome to our coffee clutch. I hope you have your coffee with you. I do, Bob. Thank you to you and Heather for having me on. I haven't written nearly as many books as you, Bob, but I, I admire your prolificness, not in, as, a, as an author, but going from forum to forum. And congratulations to you and Heather on having a great podcast. Already a big success. Well, thank you. And you are a big success. And we want to talk to you about what do you think about uh, what happened in New Hampshire? I mean, am I wrong in saying that uh, actually it was a defeat for Trump, given that he is the effective incumbent and uh, his, I don't know, his notoriety? I mean, how can you explain being so badly uh, having such a bad performance in New Hampshire? I'm here. Absolutely right. You actually made a point, which I think not enough commentators have uh, said, which is the reason Trump is actually winning is he was the former president. Being president gives you a huge advantage in these primaries. And the fact that 40 to 5 percent of folks are still voting against you uh, is a big warning sign for November. There was all these stories about is the Democratic coalition going to be unified? Let me tell you, I was up in New Hampshire for two days campaigning all over uh, for the president, and he got votes from Bernie folks, Warren folks, Buttigieg folks, the, the party is absolutely unified around uh, him. Uh, Trump is the one who has a, a bigger problem. He's got all these moderate Republicans, uh, pro-choice Republicans, independents for saying, I'm never going to vote for him. And I, I don't think there's been a sufficient attention at how hard it's going to be for him to put together a winning coalition. Well, that is, I mean, he is probably, let's face it, he's probably going to get the nomination. I think it's going to be very hard for Nikki Haley. Uh, but when he gets the nomination, I mean, he does face 
uh, a crowd of people, uh, many of them Republicans, many of them Republican moderates, as you said, uh, and all these independents who don't want him to be president. So I, I'm not paying any attention to these early polls at all that are showing him doing very, very well against Biden. Uh, are you in South Carolina right now or heading there? I am. I'm, I'm tonight going to be speaking uh, at uh, the big uh, first of the nation convention uh, that the state party is doing. The president's going to be there. Uh, Jim Clyburn's going to be there. And I'm going to be making the case why uh, progressives need to rally around uh, this president. And I'm optimistic. Look, Bob, uh, you remember, because we're both students of politics, that John Glenn was meeting uh, Ronald Reagan at this time in 1983, early 84. So these polls are are meaningless as a hypothetical. And I think what New Hampshire shows is that when the election actually comes, when it's an actual choice, uh, people rally around uh, the president. I, I think we can't take it for granted, but if we do our work, I'm confident we will win. No, I was just going to say, let's not be smug about it. Let's not take it for granted. Uh, Heather, I want to let you uh, get in here too. I just wanted to get your sense on what was scary in the beginning of something big, I'm sure, which was this AI voice replicating what was supposed to be President Biden calling people up and saying, no need to vote today. Just wait for the general. And, you know, this is AI. This is a synthetic voice. It's deep fake. It's not good. And it's scary. I wanted your opinions on that. It's a big problem. And this is why we need uh, AI regulation. I mean, there should have been uh, disclosure, if something is uh, a non-human voice, uh, there should be uh, guardrails in not being able to uh, impersonate someone with false information. But we haven't had that regulatory uh, agency. And in the absence of that, I would say to the tech companies, don't allow this AI to be used for electioneering. Look, there are constructive possible uses. In India, for example, uh, candidates are using it to have different dialects, and there are 26 dialects, and they're translating it into different dialects. The problem is, because we have no regulation, because we have no safety, there's such potential for abuses. And so I would say there should be a prohibition until we get the uh, regulation there of using this kind of uh, tool uh, to mislead voters. When a, right. when a member of Congress says there should be a regulation, um, I, you know, something, something in the back of my brain, I've been in Washington, well, what, what do you do? I mean, honestly, as a practical matter, you're there in the middle of, of everything. Uh, we all believe, we all believe, we all agree with you. I mean, deep fakes, uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of danger here. What, as a practical matter, do you do? Well, one simple uh, thing we could do or pass should be that uh, if there is an AI-generated image, if there is any AI-generated uh, content, it should be clearly labeled that it's AI generated. Uh, and that is something the president's uh, uh, executive order uh, says, okay, tech companies should do it voluntarily. But we haven't been able to get uh, Republicans to come to the table uh, on legislation on this. Now, in fairness, even when the Democrats were in charge, it was hard to get uh, tech legislation uh, through. It just hasn't been uh, as much of a priority for Congress. Uh, but the uh, reality is this technology can be causing extraordinary disruption in our democracy, and it's getting people addicted, young people addicted to, to this, these platforms, causing thoughts of suicide, eating disorders. I mean, we need basic regulation. I'm going to keep pushing for it, and hopefully more leaders will recognize it's a priority. We've got to get it done. Well, let me uh, just I, recognize yeah. For you and for everybody who's listening, you are the representative of Silicon Valley. You are the person who, you know, who is Mr. in a way, big tech. 
uh, in Congress. Yeah, we, you know, you, district, right? I mean, we're, we're relying on you, Roe, to convince uh, all of these all companies you. that they have a certain social responsibility here. Well, they, they they certainly need to do better than they did in 16 and, and 20. They, they took some uh, steps, but I, I think candidly that the uh, we have to convince these tech companies uh, to do better because there's not going to be legislation that passes before November. Uh, and our hope is that they're going to realize uh, that, that this should not be taking place. Now, the, the, the good news is when Dean Phillips, who was one of the challengers to the president, had an, uh, a bot, AI bot uh, that he was trying to, to uh, deploy, OpenAI came and said, look, that's banned. We don't want to have this until the technology is properly safeguarded. So uh, my hope right. is that the tech companies are going to be uh, cautious, but we need to, to, to continue to push on them to do that. Right. And I actually really, you're, you did an op-ed in the, you wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about this and how we have, what can we learn from globalization, how that affected the middle class. AI is happening. Let's get ahead of it. Let's include workers in the conversations intellectually, financially with shared profits. One thing you said in that op-ed was, will our first trillionaire be generated by AI generation. And I think it's so interesting. This Oxfam report came out in the next decade. We expect our first trillionaire. Let's remember that is a million millions. That is what a trillion, that's how many zeros a trillionaire has. I mean, that's wild to think about. Now, do we think that first trillionaire is going to be Jeff Bezos or maybe, <laughs> maybe Mr. Musk? But what's amazing to me is that this is an ambition of people in the, the valley. Right. I mean, you, you think, what, what, what more are you going to do with the money? But, uh, you know, it highlights the, the vast economic inequality that we have, which is our big challenge. And AI is just one manifestation of it. But the, the reality is that so much of the gains of uh, globalization technology have gone to the capital class. Now, I'm for a wealth tax yep. for these billionaires and uh, multi-millionaires. And I often say, how is this a hard vote for any other district? I've got more of them in my district than anywhere, $10 trillion of, uh, of market value. But, but the story is pretty simple. Mo the wages of, of working in middle class at best have stagnated, even if uh, they've gone slightly up for other people not in the bottom 20, 30 percent. You had uh, huge costs of health care, huge costs of uh, education, huge cost of child care. So discretionary income has gone down. And at the same yeah. time, you've got uh, people in uh, Silicon Valley, New York, doing extraordinarily well. This is just not sustainable uh, for democracy. You can't have a situation right. like this. Well, I think. And so this brings us to our next topic, which fire. is. <laughs> yeah, preaching to the choir. This is our next topic, which is the economy. I mean, if we have one more report of how great it's doing, I don't, I mean, so unemployment down, jobs up, consumer sentiment up, consumer confidence up, the growth up. I mean, things are going. Economy grew 3.1% last year and 3.3% over the last three months of last year. Uh, and we also know that rents, the medium rents, have dropped for eight months in a row. I mean, uh, I don't, I mean, if I were president, I'd not only be crowing about this and be very happy about it, but if I were a constituent, if I were a voter, I would be saying to myself, hmm, Joe Biden is actually presiding over one of the best economies we've seen. But do voters believe that? Well, the president deserves credit. It's not just a happenstance that this happened, right? The American Rescue Plan 
uh, actually puts money in the pockets for the first time of working class and middle class folks. That's why uh, we have seen the economy be as resilient, even with interest rates hikes, because Joe Biden said, I'm going to invest in the working and middle class. He invested in infrastructure, he invested in manufacturing. That's why unemployment has been at record low levels. And the president should make it clear how his policies have led to this result. It wasn't inevitable. But then taking a page, in my view, from FDR's uh, famous speech in 1936, when he ran for re-election, he should say, I have done all this and I'm going to continue to do it. But for 50 years, there's been an assault on the working and middle class. I understand why so many people feel the American dream has slipped away. I understand why the cost of the big ticket items, childcare, education, housing are still too high. I understand why we still need a long way to go to have high paying, good paying jobs. And, and I'm not going to rest. I, I, I can't even change this in Forget four years or eight years. This is going to a decades project to rebuild the working and middle class. And here's what I'm going to do uh, to continue on this progress. And my sense is that's what we're going to hear from the president in a State of the Union coming up on March 7th. Well, from your lips to Joe Biden's brain, I hope you're absolutely right, <laughs> because that's exactly what he needs to say. I mean, the distressing thing, honestly, has been that this there is this kind of dissonance of great economic news. But a lot of people out there, uh, certainly people I talk to and the polls back me up, you know, are just saying, well, yeah, a lot of new jobs. I've got three of them or uh, the economy may be going gangbusters, but my own personal economy is not going all that well. Uh, or if they're a young person, they say, I can't afford housing and I can't afford childcare." So uh, he I think you're absolutely right. He's got to get ahead of this. He's got to talk about what he's going to do for, you know, kitchen table economic issues that people face. You know, I, I've been traveling so much, I can't uh, remember exactly which place I was in, but I've done this a number of times where I, you go and you ask a group of folks in their 40s, 50s and 60s, do you believe that the American dream is stronger today or do you believe that the American dream was stronger 30 years ago? And if you ask people that many hands go up saying uh, it was much stronger in the past and they feel like the American dream is slipping away. Now, we've made extraordinary progress on race, on gender, but the reality is that we have not done enough for the working and middle class in this country. Uh, and we still, of course, have progress to make on race and gender. But we have to understand people's frustration, their fear that their life is not going to be as good uh, as it used to be, that their kid's life isn't going to be as good as it used to be. Donald Trump comes in and takes this and combines it toxically with race. And he says, you know what also used to be the case back then? There were less immigrants. It was less diverse. Uh, let's go back. And people say, you know, I want the economic security it's our job to say you can have that economic security, economic prosperity, uh, and we can have uh, a future multiracial America. And if we don't appreciate people's anger and sense of loss, uh, we're never going to be able to, 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 to win them over. And so, yes, let's talk about Biden's policies working, not as, as crowing about his achievements, but as proof case that this is the direction we need to continue to go in. That's an important point. And, and you mentioned the word fear. I mean, I think that the a lot of the reason that the Republicans are are pushing this fear of immigrants and the notion that the border, uh, you know, it has to be, uh, you know, militarized and and that uh, Biden is failing on the border uh, has to do with with this this age old fear, uh, this kind of nativism uh, that uh, Republicans have been 
Well, it's not new. The nativism has been a Republican product for years. Uh, but uh, when it actually tips over to xenophobia, which we're seeing under Donald Trump, and, and we saw under Donald Trump, and we're seeing now Donald Trump pushing it again, uh, well, I, it's very worrying. I mean, you're in the House, and uh, at least the Senate looks like it, and, and Senate Republicans look like they might be willing to come up with a border solution, which would free funds for Ukraine. Uh, but House Republicans seem absolutely adamant. Is that your impression? They're absolutely adamant, and especially with Donald Trump telling him we don't want to deal because he wants to run on this issue. Uh, they have dug in. Here's, I think, what's so important. I mean, the, the Donald Trump has injected into the political de debate that immigrants are poisoning the bloodstream, that immigrants are the problem. I think the Democrats have to start with a very simple point that immigrants enrich America, that this nation of immigrants leads to ambition and renewal and hard work and appeal to John F. Kennedy and appeal to uh, Bill Clinton and uh, Barack Obama, who made the case that actually immigrant is in, immigrants are enriching. Because if we just accept the frame that immigration is a problem, we're arguing uh, on the wrong turf. I think we want to be aspirational. And then we say, of course, we want a secure border. Of course, we want a uh, a, a orderly process. One of my favorite stories, Bob, quickly, is Mario Cuomo, and he imagines uh, what his parents were, would have said when he came to Ellis Island. And uh, the Ellis Island uh, interviewer asks uh, his mother, uh, what do you do? And she says, I don't have a job. What does your husband do? He's a ditch digger. What's your education? Uh, eighth grade, his education, about eighth grade. Well, what are you coming to America? Well, we want opportunity. What's your expectation for your son? Oh, nothing, just that he'd become governor of New York. I still hear that, and it sends chills down me when I hear it. America is an aspirational country. We've got to defeat Trump by giving an aspirational vision of what this country is. I think that the aspirations, the idealism of America is so connected to immigration. I mean, that's, uh, after all, I mean, look back, most, most of us, came from immigrant families. Some of us came from immigrants who didn't want to be immigrants, actually were forced to come over here as slaves. Uh, but most of us uh, actually were, 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 were coming here because of opportunity uh, and we were being, uh, you know, facing uh, harsh violence in many places of the world. And Emma, Emma Lazarus's poem on the Statue of Liberty, you know, give me your tired, your huddled, your poor, yearning to be free. Well, that's, that's, that is the aspiration. That, you're 100% you're right. We should be talking and reminding people of that. Now, we, we, it would be amiss if we didn't talk about all the horrible wars happening around the globe right now. And I know that you, Congressman Roe, may I say Roe? Please, Heather, lunch. of course. We're having this coffee in, here. This so. is informal. This is informal. So, Roe, I mean, you came out and were, I think it was in The Nation, another op-ed where I read it, where you said, you know, it's not okay to go and bomb the Houthis without getting congressional approval. So it's so it's so interesting to have you here instead of just Bob and me, which, by the way, is also fun. Um, but tell us what is happening. I mean, from your point of view and how you're seeing it and what is being happening around the globe, what's being done right and where can there where's there room for improvement? Well, the Houthis uh, who are in Yemen, they're not good actors. And they're, of course, disrupting uh, these ships, uh, commercial ships yeah. and naval ships on, on the Red Sea. But let's just remember, I mean, they're one of the poorest countries in the world. And so you have America, the strongest, greatest country in the world, and we're uh, bombing Yemen. 
Uh, and it's one thing to say, okay, uh, we did it once because uh, there was some imminent attack against uh, uh, naval ships or commercial ships and the president had to defend it. But now we've done it four, five, six times. Uh, and the president has called the UK and Canada and Australia. There's a reason that the Constitution says you have to come to Congress. He has to make the case. And one of the things, if we debate it, that we'll realize is that the Saudis were bombing uh, the Houthis in Yemen for seven years, and it made no difference. And still, the president has said that it hasn't made a difference. And my belief is it's a complicated situation, but we have to give diplomacy and statesmanship there uh, a a try, which is how do we get a release of hostages and a ceasefire to de-escalate some of the tensions uh, that are in part uh, animating the Houthis? How do we have a truce in Yemen where the Houthis uh, have some uh, role with the Saudis uh, and involve our Gulf allies. At the very least, though, we right. should come to Congress so we don't inadvertently get into another yeah. uh, war in the Middle East. Aren't we already right. kind of in a world war in the Middle East? I mean, Iran is, uh, you know, is behind the Houthis. I mean, that's where a lot of the money and financing is coming from. Uh, Iran is behind Hezbollah. Iran is, I mean, a lot of this is coming ultimately from Iran and uh, and and Hamas as well. Uh, so how do we contain this kind of incipient Iranian world war? Well, I think first we try to de-escalate this immediate situation uh, in Israel and, and, and Gaza. I mean, look, Hamas was a terrorist organization that struck uh, Israel on October 7th. I think Israel had every right to pursue Hamas perpetrators. And uh, like in Munich, they should uh, get every single one who was responsible for that brutal attack. But the reality is now there have been over 20,000 Gazans, women and children killed, many of the homes destroyed. Uh, We have to figure out how to bring that war to an end with the release of hostages. And uh, we have Will Burns there with the Qataris. I'm hopeful he's going to come through with a breakthrough. If we have that ceasefire, that doesn't solve everything, but it begins to de-escalate. And then we need to sit down with the uh, the Houthis uh, and uh, UAE and, and and Saudis. The Saudis and UAE have a relationship to try to uh, s- s- deal with the Yemen situation. Iran is the most complex. And look, President Obama with the JCPOA, the part of the strategy was uh, to uh, make sure that Iran wasn't uh, a, a bad actor uh, in the region. Trump comes in and he uh, takes all of that away. Uh, he has a maximum pressure campaign. Well, how has that worked out? How has that maximum pressure campaign worked out? I would argue Iran has actually uh, done more harm with Hezbollah uh, and uh, with the Houthis. Uh, and so there has to be some uh, a, a diplomatic approach, not that Iran is a, a good regime, but if you don't want to get into war with them, uh, we need some approach that's going to ratchet down uh, the tensions. It may not be the JCPOA, but we can get some agreement uh, short of that. And that my fundamental view is that the American people don't want a, another war with Iran. They don't want us to be in, in war in the Middle East. They'd rather us be investing in education, child care, housing here at, at home. And they don't want a trillion dollar Pentagon budget. Well, that's uh, exactly what I hear from everybody. And my, yeah, my students, though, Ro, uh, what they are telling me now is that, uh, you know, they really are upset that uh, Joe Biden is, has has been so close to Netanyahu. Uh, they're upset that uh, that the United States continues to fund this uh, war that, as you said, 25,000 Palestinians in Gaza, 10,000 children killed so far. I mean, can Joe Biden, and why is he not 
let's put it this way, saying we need a ceasefire and uh, and we have to have and, and Israel is going way too far. Well, he, he, he should say that. I've called on him to say that. But here's what I say to young folks. Uh, I say there are many people like me, more progressive uh, than the president. In fact, I was criticizing the president on the Yemen strikes the night before I went to New Hampshire to campaign for him. And they said, well, why are you campaigning for him? I said, well, one, uh, the, the alternative on the Middle East, if you think that Donald Trump is going to come in uh, and bring peace in the Middle East, uh, you're just uh, factually wrong. I mean, we saw it four years ago. He's going to give the far right in Israel a total green light. There's not going to be Palestinian justice or a Palestinian state. The second point I make is that Joe Biden and the White House recognize that there's this younger generation that they need and their voices matter and they're being heard. And I think you've seen a shift in the president's own rhetoric uh, and his own policies in putting more and more pressure on Israel to minimize civilian casualties. And the final point I say is, look, I am so hopeful, actually, about this country. And what gives me hope is the young kids, the kids in their 30s and 40s, and they get it on climate, they get it on racial justice, they get it on economic justice, they get it that America has to do far better in terms of our foreign policy ideals and the dignity that we want for people here should be the dignity uh, everywhere else. And that generation, I want to give them a chance. But let me tell you, if Donald Trump is there, it's going to be a much longer road for them to be able to be in governance and, and, and have their vision. So let's get Joe Biden elected, let him be the bridge president uh, to a progressive future. And then we need all of you to, to, to run for office and, uh, and shape us in a more just direction. Well, yeah. I young people are having a better. hard time hearing that, but I do think that there's time. There's time between now and the general. I'll tell you what I, I, I don't, you know, what we shouldn't do is just engage in sort of platitudes. I love young people. I love uh, Gen Z or, you know, young people are the future. No, I, these are sub substantial folks. They, they know their issues in and out. They want to talk about Willow. They want to talk about uh, the climate policies on the LNG export terminals. They want to talk about Gaza. And what I think young people re re respect is honesty. And when I go to young people and I say, look, here's the deal. We've got 62 people in Congress for a ceasefire. Keep coming to Congress. Get that to 100. We can have an influence on, uh, on the White House, but we need your voice and don't disengage and don't have it go to Donald Trump treat them with respect because they, they get this politics and they get the issues. Well, that's, that's, that's absolutely right. And also, you know, anybody who says, uh, I'm not going to vote for Biden uh, and I'm certainly not going to vote for Trump because I'm tired of voting for the lesser of two evils is not paying attention because if they think that way and they would otherwise vote for Biden, they are helping Donald Trump. Uh, we, are, we, are, we have kept you over time. Uh, Heather, uh, do you have any more questions, any more comments, thoughts? I mean, millions, but we've all got to go about our days. I mean, Rose off to South Carolina. Bob, you're probably going to write some more substacks. I mean, if I if I was a betting gal, that's what I would say. What is can we often like to end with something light? God forbid. <laughs> What's what are you all watching on TV? Uh, Heather, obviously, the 49ers, you know, they're going to be playing the yes. Lions and uh, you know, they're, they're in my district. I've been following them all year. <laughs> You're so predictable. Oh, nice. Bay Area, you know. Uh, well, I want to say that I've, I've been watching the Emmys, and I think The Bear, uh, you know, talk about a great, great series. I, I just, it, it, it embodies everything we've been talking about in terms of American idealism and aspiration and entrepreneurship uh, and, and hard work. So watch The Bear. 
Yeah. I've been watching The Diplomat, which is <laughs> Carrie Russell's in it. I think the acting is solid. I'm into it. And then Slow Horses, I just started. I like a noir, dark um, crime drama. So those are my offers. And that's going to be your, that's the uplifting end? That noir? That's good recommendations. I mean, it's, it's uplifting. <laughs> Come far. Listen, uh, Ro Khanna, thank you so much for joining us. And everybody out there, thank you for joining us. Uh, and uh, we will see you next Saturday. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Heather. Thank you, Bob.